welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Cardiovascular prescription medications are an increasingly common cause of poisonings in the United States, including fatal events stemming from calcium channel blocker overdose. High-dose insulin euglycemic therapy has become a standard therapy in severe calcium channel blocker overdoses, but this treatment regimen is not without risk. There is growing evidence to support that identification of a patient-specific shock state is necessary to guide proper use. Today, Dr. Kyle Hess, an emergency medicine pharmacist at Mayo Clinic, will review current literature addressing the use of high-dose insulin euglycemic therapy in different types of calcium channel blocker overdoses. Cardiovascular medications are the second most common cause of drug overdose due to prescription medications behind pain and analgesic medications. Out of this category of medications, calcium channel blockers as a class make up the largest number of these deaths. In recent years, deaths due to calcium channel blocker overdose has actually outpaced deaths to every class of antidepressant medication combined. Common treatment of calcium channel blocker overdose includes IV calcium, vasopressors, and high-dose insulin euglycemic therapy. However, many clinicians feel uncomfortable with how and when to implement these various therapies when confronted with a severe calcium channel blocker overdose. Because of this, my objectives for today's presentation are for you, the audience, to be able to describe the pathophysiology of calcium channel blocker overdose, explain the rationale for use of high-dose insulin euglycemic therapy, and identify potential differences in pathophysiology between non-dihydropyridine and dihydropyridine overdose. Before we jump into the toxicology of calcium channel blockers, it's going to be important to first understand the normal ph pharmacology of these agents and the role of calcium channels in different organs throughout the body. We have two broad classes of calcium channel blockers, non-dihydropyridines, which include agents like diltiazem and verapamil, and are typically thought of as being more cardioselective, and dihydropyridines, including amlodipine, which are typically thought of as being more peripherally acting in vascular smooth muscle. Within the heart, calcium ions play an important role in both conduction and contraction. Extracellular calcium ions enter the myocyte through L-type calcium channels and stimulate a release of additional calcium from the sarcoplasmic reticulum, displacing tropomyosin, allowing actin and myosin to bind, resulting in cardiac contraction. When we think of our non-dihydropyridines, these agents block entry of calcium into the myocyte, resulting in a significant reduction in intercellular calcium ions and a decrease in both chronotropy and inotropy. Calcium ions play a similar role in peripheral vasculature, resulting in contraction of vascular smooth muscle. Dihydropyridines tend to have higher affinity for these calcium channels, blocking entry of calcium into the cell, resulting in vasodilation and a decrease in blood pressure. One additional and often forgot about location of calcium channels within the body are in the beta islet cells of the pancreas. Here, calcium ions are responsible for the re release of insulin into systemic circulation. If you have high enough concentrations of calcium channel blockers, you see a decrease in insulin release and can even see a functional insulin resistance. 
This is going to be an important mechanism to keep in mind for later on in the presentation when we talk about therapies to treat calcium channel blocker overdose. So now that we have an idea of the normal pharmacology of these agents, we can start to think about how these patients may present during overdose. In the setting of a massive ingestion, regardless of if the agent is a non-dihydropyridine or a dihydropyridine, you tend to see a loss of receptor selectivity. And because of this, patients can present in a variety of different shock pictures. Cardiogenic shock is characterized by a significant decrease in cardiac output and a hypodynamic state. Systemic vascular resistance can then be left unaffected or can even increase as the body tries to compensate. It's easy to see how overdose of calcium channel blockers could result in cardiogenic shock, as these agents are going to have a profound impact on both heart rate and contractility, reducing cardiac output and blood pressure. Typical treatment of cardiogenic shock is going to involve inotropic agents to restore both heart rate and contractility. Vasodilatory or distributive shock is characterized by a significant decrease in systemic vascular resistance. As a result, you can see the body compensate by increasing cardiac output, resulting in a potential hyperdynamic state. You can see a vasodilatory shock in the setting of a calcium channel blocker overdose due to significant vasodilation in the peripheral vasculature, dropping systemic vascular resistance and blood pressure. Typical treatment of vasodilatory shock is going to involve vasopressors to augment the systemic vascular resistance. Due to loss of receptor selectivity, you often will see a mixed shock picture in the setting of a calcium channel blocker overdose with both a decrease in cardiac output and systemic vascular resistance. As a result, you'll probably need to use both inotropes and vasopressors to resolve this shock. Due to the unpredictability of how these patients may present an overdose, it's going to be critical for clinicians to be able to quickly identify a patient-specific shock state. One useful tool for doing this is bedside cardiac ultrasound. This is useful for characterizing if a patient has a hyper or a hypodynamic state. It's important to keep in mind that in the setting of an overdose, patient's shock state can shift throughout their hospital course. So the utilization of bedside ultrasound can be useful to identify a patient's initial shock state, titrate initial therapies to an optimal dose. If a patient has a sudden change in status later on in their hospital stay, it can be useful to see if maybe their shock state has shifted. And as you're trying to wean off of therapies that you've provided them, you can use bedside cardiac ultrasound to determine if you're moving too fast. Now that we have an idea of how these patients may present, we can start to talk about potential treatments for calcium channel blocker overdose. If a patient presents early on after their ingestion, you can consider early GI decontamination with something like activated charcoal. And this is typically done within one to two hours of an ingestion. From there, you can monitor for signs and symptoms of toxicity, like hypotension, bradycardia, or altered mental status. If no symptoms develop, you can start by just observing the patient. However, if symptoms do develop, first-line therapy is going to involve gentle fluid resuscitation with 10 to 15 milliliters per kilogram of crystalloid, as well as IV calcium targeting uh, 1.5 to 2 times the upper limit of normal of ionized calcium. The rationale for this therapy is that if you provide enough extracellular calcium ions, you can potentially overcome the calcium channel blockade, and there's many case reports of patients being treated successfully with just IV calcium monotherapy. After these initial therapies, you're going to want to closely monitor a patient's hemodynamic status, including if they're demonstrating signs of myocardial dysfunction, vasodilatory shock, or bradycardia. If a patient has significant decrease in cardiac output, 
or myocardial dysfunction, then one of your first line therapies is going to be high dose insulin. And you can consider adding additional inotropes like dobutamine or epinephrine. If a patient is presenting with primarily a vasodilatory shock, you can add on norepinephrine or additional vasopressors as needed. If a patient is struggling with bradycardia, you can start with initial boluses of atropine, and if needed, switch the norepinephrine to an epinephrine drip to increase beta-adrenergic activity or consider transcutaneous pacing. If a patient is having a refractory shock to all of these therapies, you can consider moving on to uh, further therapies down the line in your algorithm, such as methylene blue, intravenous fat emulsion, or consulting an ECMO team. With all these different therapies in mind, it can get a little confusing about how and when to implement. So I think it'll be helpful to talk through a couple of different patient cases of calcium channel blocker overdose. Our first case is AJ, who is a 35-year-old male presenting four hours following a reported ingestion of approximately 70 diltiazem 240 milligram extended release capsules. He denies any co-ingested medications or any relevant past medical history. My first question for you in the audience is based on AJ's report ingestion, what initial physiologic changes would you expect to see at this time? Would you expect to see A, a reduction in systemic vascular resistance with increased heart rate and force of contraction to compensate? B, a reduced heart rate leading to a decrease in cardiac output and a hypodynamic state? C, a reduction in force of contraction leading to a decrease in cardiac output? or D, reduced insulin release, leading to hyperglycemia and a functional insulin resistance. You can think about what answer you choose in your head. So the purpose of this question wasn't to say that there's one particular presentation that we could expect to see with AJ, but rather to highlight that due to a loss of receptor selectivity, you could really see any of these different presentations and it might change throughout AJ's hospital course. In this particular case, in the emergency department, AJ is mildly bradycardic with heart rates in the 50s, mildly hypotensive with systolics in the 100s and a mean arterial pressure in the 70s. Initial therapy is provided with a small bolus of normal saline and calcium gluconate to target an ionized calcium of 1.5 to two times the upper limit of normal. From there, AJ is transferred to the medical ICU for close monitoring. While in the medical ICU, AJ becomes progressively bradycardic and hypotensive despite adequate calcium replacement. The team performs a bedside ultrasound, revealing a hypodynamic state. The medical resident then approaches you as a MICU pharmacist and asks what your thoughts are on starting vasopressors versus high-dose insulin. In order to answer this question, you're going to have to have a good idea of what the rationale is for use of high-dose insulin therapy for calcium channel blocker overdose, including its proposed mechanism of action and what evidence is available for its use. During periods of stress, such as during cardiogenic shock following calcium channel blocker overdose, the heart has significant metabolic changes where it shifts its preferred source of energy from free fatty acids to carbohydrates. The heart relies on insulin-mediated active transport to move glucose across the cell membrane into the myocyte. However, you'll remember that during a calcium channel blocker overdose, you can see inhibition of the release of insulin from the beta islet cells of the pancreas. As a result, you can see insufficient transport of glucose across the cell membrane and insufficient ATP production. Because of this, the heart is unable to meet its metabolic demands, and this can lead to worsening of cardiogenic shock. You can provide exogenous insulin to restore this movement of glucose across the cell membrane, resulting in a positive inotropic effect treating the cardiogenic shock. A secondary mechanism of action of insulin is through the enhancement of endothelial nitric oxide synthase, resulting in vasodilation. 
This is beneficial in treating microvascular dysfunction, which is one of the key hallmarks of cardiogenic shock, as well as improving coronary perfusion and oxygen delivery. While you may understand the mechanism of high-dose insulin, you might still be asking yourself, why not just use other therapies like vasopressors or other inotropic agents? In order to answer this question, we'll analyze some studies in both humans and animal data comparing use of vasopressors to use of high-dose insulin for calcium channel blocker overdose. A couple of studies published in the early 2000s compared vasopressin to placebo in animal models of verapamil toxicity. Interestingly, both of these studies showed a trend towards potential harm with vasopressin use, with one study showing that increased doses of vasopressin actually led to a decrease in cardiac index, and another study showing a trend towards mortality increase in patients treated with vasopressin. In both of these studies, there is no significant difference in mean arterial pressure between the animals treated with vasopressin and the animals treated with placebo. You might be quick to point out, though, that vasopressin might not be an optimal agent in treatment of calcium channel blocker overdose as it adds no inotropic effect. This is true, but there's also a series of studies published in the 1990s that compared high-dose insulin to other agents that do have positive inotropic effect, like epinephrine and glucagon. What these studies found is animals treated with high-dose insulin had the highest rate of survival compared to the other therapies, and one of the studies actually showed that high-dose insulin was associated with the longest survival time, while animals treated with epinephrine actually had a shorter survival time compared to placebo. The authors also reported the effects of these therapies on hemodynamic parameters, and while this may look confusing, what I want you to take away from this is high-dose insulin was associated with improvements in markers of cardiac output, while in one study, epinephrine actually resulted in increase in adverse effects like arrhythmias, and in another study, both glucagon and epinephrine actually led to a decrease in left ventricular efficiency. So takeaways from these animal studies is that vasopressors may actually be harmful in treatment of calcium channel blocker toxicity. How does this compare to treatment in humans though? Well, it's difficult, if not impossible, to conduct randomized controlled trials in toxicology cases in humans. There was a nice systematic review of case reports published in 2017 that looked at various case reports of these various vasopressors on the screen in treatment of calcium channel blocker induced cardiogenic shock. The authors categorize the effect of these various therapies as either effective in increasing both heart rate and blood pressure, partially effective in only increasing one of these parameters or only showing improvement when combined with other therapies, or not effective with no improvement in blood pressure or heart rate after these agents were started. What these authors found is there were only a few case reports where vasopressors were truly effective in increasing both heart rate and blood pressure. There are a decent number of case reports where vasopressors were partially effective when combined with other therapies, but in the vast majority of cases, you saw no improvement in hemodynamics status after starting vasopressors. So a takeaway from the systematic analysis is that vasopressors are likely minimally effective, but not necessarily harmful in treatment of calcium channel blocker cardiogenic shock in humans. How does this compare to data that we have with humans or with high-dose insulin though? Well, over the past decade, there's been a few different case series published by various poison control centers looking at their experience with use of high-dose insulin. In 2011, Holger and colleagues published a case series of 11 patients that utilized a rate of 1 to 10 units per kilogram per hour of high-dose insulin infusion for overdose. These authors reported a fairly high rate of survival, with 92% of their patients surviving and 100% survival in those who ingested a calcium channel blocker. 
The author has also reported the effect of insulin on hemodynamic status by reporting both a blood pressure nadir as well as a post-insulin bolus blood pressure. And what you can see is in the patients who had a calcium channel blocker ingestion, there was a significant increase in blood pressure following the bolus of insulin. <laughs> Additionally, the authors report that in seven patients who were on vasopressors prior to initiation of insulin, they were able to be weaned from these vasopressors relatively quick after the insulin infusion was started. As you might expect, common adverse effects associated with high-dose insulin in the series is hypoglycemia and hypokalemia. In 2013, the Illinois Poison Control Center put out a case series of 46 uh, patients that all ingested calcium channel blocker overdose that were treated with a relatively lower rate of insulin of 0.5 to 1 unit per kilogram per hour. Again, you saw decently high survival in this case series of 80%, but interestingly, none of these patients developed hypoglycemia. A couple of potential contributing factors to this might be the lower rate of insulin used in, this, uh, in these patients, as well as the fact that all these patients were presenting with a calcium channel overdose, where you might expect to see higher rates of hyperglycemia and insulin resistance to begin with. In 2018, two additional case series were published with a higher number of patients in them, again, using rates of insulin ranging from about 1 to 15 units per kilogram per hour. You saw fairly high rates of survival in these studies as well, ranging from 84 to 90%, and still saw fairly high rates of hypoglycemia and hypokalemia. One thing I will highlight here is that the study published by Cole and colleagues out of the Minnesota Poison Control Center had relatively lower rates of hypoglycemia and hypokalemia compared to other case series. And this might be due to the fact that these authors implemented a standardized protocol for both potassium and glucose replacement, which emphasizes the importance of close lab, lab monitoring in these patients and replacement of both potassium and glucose. Takeaways from this human data with high-dose insulin is that high-dose insulin is potentially beneficial in improving hemodynamics and maybe even mortality, but is associated with common yet easily correctable adverse effects. So now let's go back to our patient case with AJ, remembering that he's becoming progressively bradycardic and hypotensive and is currently demonstrating a hypodynamic state. After collaborating with the MICU team, you decide to initiate high-dose insulin and I want to know what would the benefit, what benefit would you expect to see following initiation of this therapy? Would you expect to see A, an increase in systemic vascular resistance, thereby increasing mean arterial pressure? B, inhibition of endothelial nitric oxide synthase, leading to coronary vasoconstriction? C, an increase in transport of glucose into the myocytes, resulting in a positive inotropic effect? Or D, a significant increase in heart rate to resolve his bradycardia? So the correct answer here would be C, increased transport of glucose into the myocytes resulting in a positive inotropic effect. A and B are incorrect because high-dose insulin will actually enhance the activity of endothelial nitric oxide synthase, and you can see a decrease in systemic vascular resistance and coronary vasodilation. And D is incorrect because high-dose insulin has less of an effect on the conduction abnormalities with calcium channel blockers, and you won't see a significant increase in heart rate. So now that we decided we want to start high-dose insulin in AJ, let's talk through some of the logistics of how to actually implement this therapy. It's going to be important to start out by obtaining central access in these patients because you're going to be using a concentrated insulin solution as well as a concentrated dextrose solution and able to maintain euglycemia without completely volume overloading these patients. After you obtain central access, you'll give an initial bolus of one to two amps of dextrose, depending on what baseline blood sugars are. And then you'll give your first bolus of high-dose insulin, which is typically one unit per kilogram as a quick IV push. 
After these initial boluses have been given, you'll simultaneously start your high-dose insulin infusion, typically at a rate of one unit per kilogram per hour, as well as a D50 infusion, where our current policy is to start at 150 mils per hour, but we're revisiting this and we might be a little bit more conservative in the future uh, when we develop or revise our order sets. Insulin is going to be titrated based on improvement in cardiac output. If you see improvement in cardiac output at this rate, you can continue the infusion where it's at and attempt to wean any other vasopressors that may have been started. However, if you don't see an improvement in cardiac output, you can titrate up on the dose of high-dose insulin by one to two units per kilogram every five to 15 minutes, up to a soft max of 10 units per kilogram per hour. I will note that there's many case reports using higher rates than this, so you can titrate up higher, but typically you should be doing this in conjunction with your local poison control center. Your dextrose infusion is going to be titrated to maintain a goal blood sugar of 150 to 250, and we'll typically start out with Q15 minute glucose checks. Depending on what your blood sugar is, you can give an additional bolus of dextrose and increase infusion rate, keep it where it's at, or decrease infusion by 25 to 50%. As we mentioned before, one other important per monitoring parameter is going to be uh, your serum potassium, where we currently target a goal potassium of greater than 2.5. We'll start out with Q1 hour potassium checks, and depending on what potassium is, you can replete up to 20 mil equivalents per hour of potassium chloride uh, through your central line. So now that we've talked through starting high-dose insulin in a patient relatively early on after their ingestion, let's take a look at another patient case who's a little further along in their hospital course. NY is a 44-year-old female who ingested 90 amlodipine 10 milligram tablets. You are the MICU pharmacist covering NY who is currently three days into her ICU length of stay. Current therapies for NY include high-dose insulin currently running at a rate of eight units per kilogram per hour, norepinephrine running at a rate of 0.5 micrograms per kilogram per minute, and calcium has been adequately repleted to two times the upper limit of normal of ionized calcium. Today's assessment of NY's hemodynamic status is as follows. Her heart rate is 95 beats per minute. Her blood pressure is 74 over 38, resulting in a MAP of 50. And a bedside cardiac ultrasound is performed, revealing she's in a hyperdynamic state. Following this assessment, the MICU team approaches you and asks what you think should be done to improve NY's hemodynamic status. When you think through our various therapies, you have quite a few different options that you could attempt to do. Do you titrate up on her high-dose insulin or her norepinephrine drip? Do you add on a second or third line vasopressor? Or do you reach for your more refractory therapies like methylene blue, intralipid, or consulting the ACMO team? In order to answer this question, it'll be helpful to think through the specific ingestion reported in this case. Amlodipine is a, not, or is a dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker, and over the past decade, deaths due to amlodipine overdose have been on the rise. In recent years, deaths due to amlodipine overdose have actually doubled deaths due to non-dihydropyridine overdose in the United States. What's interesting about amlodipine is it actually has an additional mechanism of action besides simply blocking calcium channels. Amlodipine enhances activity of endothelial nitric oxide synthase, leading to increased production of nitric oxide, stimulating guanylate cyclase to produce cyclic GMP, resulting in an additional mechanism for vasodilation. You'll remember that high-dose insulin also enhances the activity of endothelial nitric oxide synthase, so there's concern that there's a synergistic effect between amlodipine and high-dose insulin, resulting in a more profound vasodilation and potentially refractory vasodilatory shock. 
In order to further characterize this hypothesized synergy, Cole and colleagues out of the Minnesota Poison Control Center published a recent study that looked at all calcium channel blocker patients they treated that were receiving high-dose insulin. They divided these patients into two groups, one group of 18 patients who reported an amlodipine ingestion and one group of 15 patients who reported a non-dihydropyridine ingestion. These authors assessed for evidence of vasoplegia, such as maximum number of vasopressors required, doses of vasopressors, and need for refractory therapies like methylene blue. On the right-hand side of the slide, you can see baseline patient characteristics. And what I want to highlight here is that the severity of ingestion seems fairly similar between the two groups, with similar nadir heart rate and blood pressure, similar rates of mortality, major and moderate clinical effects, and similar rates of co-ingestion. What the authors found is patients reporting an amlodipine ingestion were typically titrated up to a higher dose of uh, insulin with a median rate of 10 units per kilogram per hour compared to a median rate of 5 units per kilogram per hour in the non-dihydropyridine group. They also found that patients in the amlodipine group required a higher number of vasopressors on average, as well as higher epinephrine uh, dosing and increased rates of rescue methylene blue utilized. On the bottom of this table, you can see use of other vasopressors like vasopressin, phenylephrine, and angiotensin II. And again, you'll see that it's, these vasopressors were used at a numerically higher rate compared to in the amlodipine group compared to the non-dihydropyridine group. So takeaways from this is that patients ingesting amlodipine had increased markers of vasoplegia, were titrated to higher doses of high-dose insulin, and had increased need for additional vasopressors. Because you might be expecting a more refractory shock in these patients, you might need to think through some of your refractory therapies for treatment of calcium channel blocker overdose. One intriguing therapy specifically for amlodipine overdose would be methylene blue. Methylene blue inhibits activity of endothelial nitric oxide synthase, scavenges nitric oxide, and decreases activity of guanolite cyclase, which would decrease vasodilation caused by both amlodipine and high-dose insulin. Another refractory therapy that you can consider is intravenous lipid emulsion or intralipid. To think through the mechanism of action of this agent, you need to think back to your pharmacokinetic courses where the body is divided into different theoretical compartments where drug is distributed into, including your plasma compartment where drug wouldn't be physiologically active, and then your target organs of toxicity like your heart, systemic vasculature, or pancreas. During a calcium channel blocker overdose, you'll see a drug distribute in these various compartments. The theory with intralipid is that after you administer the lipid emulsion, it will expand the volume of distribution of your plasma compartment and draw drug away from the target organs of toxicity into the plasma compartment for elimination. There's mixed evidence for use of both of these refractory therapies. We have some animal data to support the use of methylene blue, where methylene blue is compared to placebo or no treatment and resulted in an increased two-hour survival time and hemodynamic profile. Another study in rats compared methylene blue intralipid normal saline to no treatment. And what this study found is that the patients receiving intralipid actually had the highest survival rate well, there was not necessarily a survival difference between animals receiving methylene blue and normal saline. In the study, both intralipid and methylene blue improved both heart rate and mean arterial pressure. Some less encouraging studies in, include a porcine model that compared methylene blue to norepinephrine, and there was no difference in survival time between these two agents. 
And then in 2016, uh, Warwick and colleagues published a syst systematic analysis of case reports of patients with toxin-induced shock who received either methylene blue with or without intralipid. And what they found is only about half of patients had hemodynamic improvement following administration of methylene blue. And actually zero of the seven patients receiving intralipid had any blood pressure improvement. In addition to this mixed efficacy data, these agents also aren't without their drawbacks. Methylene blue can interfere with color metric analysis of laboratory tests. So that can make it difficult to interpret lab values after administration of this agent. Intralipid, while it can act as a lipid sink for your toxin, can also act as a lipid sink for other therapies you're administering to try and treat this patient. Because of this mixed efficacy data and potential drawbacks of these agents, it's probably best to reserve them for further down the line in your algorithm. Following the findings of their study, Cole and colleagues developed a new algorithm that they utilize for treatment of calcium channel blocker overdose. They'll start out with IV fluids, calcium, and atropine, similar to previous algorithms. However, they recommend that if you have hypotension refractory to these therapies, you initiate both high-dose insulin and norepinephrine simultaneously to target both cardiac output and systemic vascular resistance. From here, you'll monitor three hemodynamic profiles of heart rate, cardiac contractility, and mean arterial pressure. If these remain adequate, you can continue monitoring these patients and wean therapies as able. Otherwise, further therapies will be directed based on the dysfunction in hemodynamics. If you have inadequate heart rate, you can do atropine boluses. You can consider replacing your norepinephrine with epinephrine. You can provide inotropic agents like dobutamine, or you could consider transcutaneous pacing. If bedside ultrasound shows inadequate contractility, this is when you would want to increase your high-dose insulin to higher rates or add additional inotropes like dobutamine. If mean arterial pressure is inadequate, then you need to ask yourself, is this patient demonstrating a more cardiogenic or distributive shock? If the answer is distributive, then you should work on maximizing your alpha agonists like the norepinephrine you have running or adding on additional vasopressors. If you have a refractory distributive shock, once these therapies are optimized, then you can consider admission administration of IV lipid emulsion. If your patient is demonstrating a more cardiogenic shock, then again, this is when you titrate up on your high-dose insulin, add inotropes, or optimize your pacing. Once these therapies are optimized, if you have a refractory cardiogenic shock, you should consider consulting an ECMO team if that's available at your institution, or if not, then you can consider administration of IV lipid emulsion. With this new proposed algorithm in mind, let's go back to our case with NY. Remembering she's currently tachycardic with heart rates in the 90s, she's hypotensive, and her bedside ultrasound shows that she's currently in a hyperdynamic state. Based on these findings, what interventions would you recommend at this time to improve NY's hemodynamic status? Would you recommend A, switching norepinephrine to epinephrine, B, initiating vasopressin, C, optimizing high-dose insulin to 10 units per kilogram per hour, D, administering intravenous fat emulsion, E, administering methylene blue, or F, consulting the ECMO team. So what I would recommend in this situation is probably initiating vasopressin since NY is demonstrating a hyperdynamic state and potentially a vasodilatory shock. A, switching norepinephrine to epinephrine would be beneficial if NY was bradycardic. However, in this situation, she's tachycardic. 
see optimizing high dose insulin would be beneficial if NY was demonstrating a cardiogenic shock or had a hypodynamic um, finding on her cardiac ultrasound. However, in this situation, she is hyperdynamic. D and E are options to consider. However, in this particular situation, I'd work on optimizing other vasopressors before reaching for these therapies. And F, recommending ECMO consultation would be more beneficial if NY was demonstrating a refractory cardiogenic shock. Key takeaways I want you to have from today's presentation are remembering that calcium channel blocker overdose due to loss of receptor selectivity can result in both a cardiogenic and vasodilatory shock. Because of this, you can use tools like bedside cardiac ultrasound to determine a patient-specific shock state to guide therapy. Remembering that the mechanism for high-dose insulin is through optimization of myocardial energy utilization, resulting in a positive inotropic effect. I really want to emphasize that titration of therapies should be guided based on a patient-specific shock state. If a patient has a more cardiogenic shock or is hypodynamic, that's when you should consider increasing your high-dose insulin. If a patient is demonstrating a more vasodilatory shock, then I would recommend increasing your norepinephrine or adding additional vasopressors. And finally, keeping in mind that amlodipine has additional mechanisms of action that may result in a more profound vasodilatory shock. So especially in these patients, utilizing bedside cardiac ultrasound to identify a patient-specific shock state. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.